Gia, we have you on mute, and I have you starting off today. All right. This is the Abolition as Resurrection Lent and Easter mini podcast series. Hi, everyone. I'm Gia. Hi, this is Camille. If you are new to our community, welcome. We are glad you found us. And if you have been with us since the beginning, welcome back. Today's conversation is on reducing harm, and our focus will be on the criminalization of mental health challenging narratives and restorative justice or restorative practices. And so we're really building off of last week's episode that we had with Marlon Chamberlain and Erica Williams. And so today we are joined by two of the most amazing, brilliant humans, organizers, and thinkers in pursuit of black liberation. Reverend Naomi Washington Leapart and Minister Willette Benford. And so we're going to have a rich conversation and we're going to learn from them about reducing harm in our communities and with and with one another as part of our abolition world. I have the pleasure of introducing our guest to you, dear listeners. So first we have Minister Willette Benford. She is a mother, leader, social justice advocate, sought after speaker and system survivor. Minister Willette spent over two decades inside the carceral system, punished for a survival crime. Minister Willette benefited from a change in the law in 2016, which amended the Illinois criminal code and made domestic violence a mitigating factor in sentencing. This resulted in her being the first woman in the state of Illinois to benefit from this new law retroactively and given an immediate release in February of 2019 after serving over 24 years in the carceral system. We also have Reverend Naomi Washington Leapart. She is a Black queer church girl, preacher, teacher, and activist. She develops spaces for spaces of spiritual candor, disruption, reflection, transformation, and action. Reverend Naomi is an adjunct professor of theology and religious studies at Villanova University and is the founder of Salt Yeast Light. She also serves the city of Philadelphia as the director for faith-based and interfaith affairs in the mayor's office. She shares life with her wife, their teenage daughter, and a hound dog girl and a black cat boy. We're so happy to have both of you here with us. So thank you, thank you. Um, before we kind of jump into our questions and our conversation, is there anything that you all would like to kind of add or share um, with our audience about yourself that maybe we didn't already share? Or if you want to kind of tell us why you said yes um, to, to this particular conversation for today. Mm, well, I'll, I'll kick us off. I'm, I'm so delighted to be here in this conversation. Um, two things that sort of bring me here, uh, in addition to just, you know, being interested in freedom as a praxis. Um, one is I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And so questions around accountability and responsibility and uh, harm and trauma are very dear to me uh, as I negotiate my own life as a survivor. Uh, my abuser is also a clergy person, um, a pastor, uh, still pastors. And so, uh, you know, little Naomi is present um, and and having conversations like this for me kind of redeems her and rids her of the shame, right? That she, she carries as a result of what happened to her. So that's one kind of lens that brings me here. And then secondly, and, and Gia knows this well, at Villanova, I got the opportunity to teach theology courses on the inside at a state correctional institution. And it really changed me as a teacher, as a professor, um, as a thinker. Um, and I'm now committed to theological education on the inside. Uh, so I'm interested in questions of redemption and responsibility and accountability and community and stigma and shame and all of that as it shows up in the theology classroom. Uh, so 
So I'm just delighted to be, to be part of this conversation. Thank you, thank you for sharing. Well, I guess I'll go. Um, what brings me to this space is <clears throat> like Reverend Naomi uh, just committed to uh, taking the, the veil off of what people think about people that have been formerly incarcerated. Also um, to be able to be a voice for someone that can survive and be criminalized for surviving, especially in domestic violence. Women are more often criminalized than anyone. And so for surviving, whenever uh, we fight back, it's like the question always comes up, why didn't she just leave? And so to, um, to really give voice to that, and also because when coming back into society after almost a quarter of a century inside, still having stigma. So saying, if you believe that the carceral system works, why are there still so many barriers to Reentry, or what you call reentry, and why, after over, even if it was ten, even if it was five, even if it was a year, if you believe that the carceral system works, why aren't people that are formerly incarcerated being set up for success instead of failure? And so that's why I'm in the space. And also to uh, advocate for my sisters that are still inside so that they can come home. Amen, amen, thank you both. So as a starting point to just kind of understanding how we begin to reduce harms and, um, and relationships with the criminalization of mental health, I think we really have to kind of start to, like we have to kind of understand like how did we get here to begin with? So research shows that nearly half of the people in US jails and prisons and more than a third of those in US prisons have been diagnosed with mental health illnesses. So that's 37% of people in state and federal prisons and 44% in local jails have been diagnosed with mental illness. I know for us in Chicago, the Cook County Department of Corrections is one of the largest mental health facilities in the country and it's a jail. Um, you know, this reality is something that's near and dear to, it's, it's not unfamiliar to me and my own family. Um, we currently have a loved one who has been incarcerated and really what the, what he what they need is quality mental health services and i've shared this a bit and other places a little bit of our story but one of the things that i've often said is that like something really dies inside of you when you come to this like horrifying realization that the safest place for a loved one coping with mental illness and substance dependency is incarceration and this is a tragic reality for so many people in our country. And so, so just again, like, how did, how did this happen? So can, can one of you all just maybe kind of get us started with breaking it down for us? Well, that you're on mute. I believe, Gia, in my heart of hearts that we got here really based off capitalism and also poverty. You know, I think about um, how, you know, Jesus coined the phrase and some pun, pun intended, how he coined the phrase, the least of these, the least of these. And when you think about the least of these in our society, it's impossible to think about that without thinking about poverty, without thinking about things that weren't provided. And I also think we got here because as a nation and as a society, we're comfortable with relegating people to a place where we don't have to see them or we don't have to think about them. And so when we don't think about them, if I don't see them, I rarely think about them. Now, that's not a blanket statement for family and friends, but it is one for, the, for our society and our nation, you know, because 
when you begin to shut down mental health facilities and you begin to shut down anything, any support for something that someone that is battling mental illness and you stigmatize it and you call it something else, then you use, you use prison as a place to throw people away and say, this is the best place for them because they're dangerous. So that's how I think we got here. That's, a, that's, that's something that has bothered me for years because I saw people come in and I saw that they needed help. And I saw how some of them were over-medicated to the point where they couldn't even talk. So that is, that's, that's how we got here. Not caring enough about the least of these. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm thinking about, too, this bizarre request or really demand that society imposes, that we adjust to the perversion of capitalism, of poverty, of, right? I, you know, I know that there are mental illnesses. I know that that's true. And I think this society makes us sick. It exacerbates. If your brain is wired a little differently, it worsens whatever might already be going on with your body. And it introduces pathology <laughs> where there was none, right? And so society makes us sick, asking us to adjust and adapt to stuff that ain't human, right? Um, and so I wanna distinguish between exactly what Minister Roulette said, how we mistreat, abuse, over-medicate folks who are diagnosed and undiagnosed with mental illnesses. And this society cultivates illness because it asks us to, you know, work for pennies on the dollar. It asks us to um, accept violence as a way of life. The only way we can solve our problems. And I'm not talking about, you know, intracommunal violence. I'm talking about political violence from the top down, right? We just supposed to adjust and adapt and accept, right? And so, what society does is it makes us sick and then blames us for being sick, right? Um, the other thing I'm thinking about is how we sanctify carceral ethics. And what I mean by that is we put some God on that. We sprinkle some God on that. We say, this is the divine order of things that some people are out of sight, out of mind, and some people are front and center all the time. We, we say that that's the holy way of organizing a society. Um, you know, and I, you know, I step on all kinds of theological toes, I guess, but whatever. When we create hell as a theological construct, and we say it's God's design that that which God created will be destroyed by God. Uh, and be tormented forever. That punishment is holy, right? Uh, that shame, that um, that poverty is somehow a sign of piety, right? So I think that the other culprit is um, religious institutions that that sprinkle some God on bad policy, uh, bad practice as a way of getting society again to surrender to this way of doing things, right? 
Um, and so religious institutions have to be accountable in the same way our political institutions got to be accountable. Mm, thank you both. That was so good. I'm, I'm Reverend Naomi, you use, you use these words so intentionally of, um, you know, sprinkling God. And then also this, like at this, this, these words of surrender. I, I, I mean, I'm used to this context of like worship is surrender. So if we're surrendering to these carceral logics, then really we're worshiping like the God of the police state. And that like, I'm going to wrap my mind around that for, I don't know, like the next 10 years of my life, <laughs> but it is just the context of like how our, theolo how our theologies are leading us to, to surrender to this knowledge is, is um, it really is mind blowing and, and causes me to question in what ways was I formed to worship this instead of actually worshiping who God is or knowing who Jesus is. Um, Minister Willette, I, I, I just want to ask you, so from your experience as someone with the um, experience of incarceration and you, Reverend Naomi, as an educator teaching in a prison, um, what are the narratives and how do you challenge them? And what can we do as a collective to begin to challenge and change the harmful, stigmatizing narratives that criminalize people with the experience of incarceration? Minister Willette, why don't you answer first? I will. Uh, some of the stigma is, and it's stigmatizing language, is to remove anything that would make you human. You are never called by your name. You are referred to as a number or inmate, offender, criminal, prisoner. And so all of those are meant to strip you of humanity to remind you of your place in this place. And so, and even coming out, society has bought into it because they'll refer to you as first someone who was incarcerated as opposed to your name and someone who had an experience with the criminal legal system because you know nothing about why someone experienced the criminal legal system. And as Reverend Naomi said, you know, their poverty, the punitive system that we live in, the carceral system that we live in makes us believe that punishment is part of God's order. When in all actuality, God is love. And so love, if you look at 1 Corinthians 13, Love is kind. Love never seeks its own, you know. Love, love, love. And so when we get away from love, the only other thing on the opposite side of that is law. And so when we think about these, these negative narratives, I remember a time when I was inside and I was like, God, everybody calls me all these different things, but what do you call me? And I could clearly hear minds. It changed my life when I found out how much God loved me. And it didn't matter what anyone else said. He said, you are inferior to none because I am superior to all. It changed my life. I didn't have to have an inferiority complex about anybody, an officer, someone in authority, being in a room where I didn't have as many degrees as a thermometer, I knew I was his. And when he called me beloved, that changed offender, criminal. It meant one who is well-loved. Love can change a life. And so when our society gets on the side of law and begins to punish, it continues to inflict harm and trauma. And then you want me to come from under that and say, okay, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but you've cut off my straps and you've taken my boots. How? How am I to do that? except 
I encounter this love, this unconditional love in a way through, through, through people, through society. I just, I just think that when you, when you strip someone of humanity and you want them to feel less than to continue to uplift a system, you begin to, the, the entire nation begins to fray because you're, you, you, it's, it's coming apart. You can't do that to people and expect to live in a peaceful society. You want peace, but you've removed any, any, any part of the Prince of Peace or any part of peace that can be brought to people. You've removed it. And you've made people feel as if they're less than with these names and these stigmas and these narratives. And so I just, I, I think some of the other narratives are they're crazy, they're dangerous, you know, they're beyond being helped. So let's just leave them where they are. And I'm gonna wrap, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna end on this. When I think about that, I think about the man in Gadarea. He was in the tombs cutting himself. They thought he was crazy. But when he encountered Jesus, he had a mental illness. But when he encountered Jesus, his entire life changed. His entire life changed. But society was afraid of him. If you remember, the people were afraid because they were so used to him being crazy, they were comfortable with it. They were comfortable with calling him crazy. They were comfortable with him cutting himself in tombs and they were going about their lives. But when they saw him clothed and in his right mind, they were afraid. That speaks volumes to a society that you are comfortable with seeing someone not supported with mental illness and healed. You, when they become healed, you're uncomfortable with that. You're uncomfortable with a group of people coming out of poverty. You're uncomfortable with people coming out of the carceral system. You're uncomfortable with change. Those stigmas, those narratives have to be changed. I'm not, well, I'm just gonna pick up the, the text right where you left off, Minister Willett. I mean, they were afraid. And then what Jesus does is he takes what was occupying the man. First of all, let's go back to how you said the diminishment of humanity, the dehumanizing piece, right? Jesus, the first thing Jesus says is, what is your name? And the man answers, I am occupied. That's what he says. My name is Legion. I have been occupied by, possessed by the military state, the carceral state. And so what Jesus does is takes what has been occupying him out of him and puts it in these swine that were over there, right? The swine then, you know, jump off the cliff. I believe that people were afraid and then they got pissed. They wanted Jesus to go out of town. They ran him out of town because of the cost of true freedom. And so one of these narratives that persists is, oh, these folks are a drain on society and they own the taxpayer's dime and they do it, you know. We, how do we reconcile that with the fact that the, the uh, system of mass incarceration is lucrative. I mean, lucrative is not even a strong enough word for what kind of, uh, what is being generated uh, on the backs, literal backs of our, of our folk, right? And then the solutions are available. We got folks who have expanded imaginations about 
how we can both you know, hold people accountable. They can repair breaches, harms, broken trust, right? Without being dehumanized, right? We, we know what's right, but it costs too much, right? It costs too, how dare you not only disrupt our own narratives about who's in and who's out, who deserves and who doesn't, but you, you make us pay for this? This is a financial sacrifice? No, 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 no. So I think that, you know, what this narrative, this persistent narrative about people as uh, 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 profit margins, people as sources of income, people as uh, widgets that we invest in a market that then, you know, returns to us, you know, millions and millions of dollars. So this transactional, it's back to the dehumanization when we see people as instruments uh, of our own financial uh, abundance and not as human beings. Um, and then one of the things, I, you know, I saw in my classroom just a brilliance. I mean, I knew, I knew, right? You get, you know, black and brown folk in a room anywhere and you gonna have some, right? Week in and week out, you know, there is a narrative that all of the brilliance is concentrated in these elite segments of society that are best innovations, that are solutions, that are, you know, creative energies are, you know, they not there, you know, that, you know, it's just how much further along could we be if all of that brilliance wasn't under lock and key, right? How much further along could we be? Uh, and so, I think that that's a narrative that must be dismantled. Uh, uh, that that again, people are discardable, and there's no there's no potential there. Um, and and then I want to say, um, you know, Brian Stevenson said it, and it gets quoted and quoted and quoted and quoted. I mean, you really, we really are more than any one act whether that act is deemed criminal or not, right? The narrative that we are what we do. And that applies to folk on the inside and folk not on the inside, right? How many hours today did I work? How many emails did I send? How many sermons did I preach? How many papers did I write, right? We are simply expressions of our own productivity. That is dehumanizing. We were not made to do, we were just made to be. We were just made to be. And so that narrative um, keeps a lot of us under lock and key, whether we are incarcerated or not, we are bound by this notion that, you know, we are only as good as the last thing we did. And that's just terrible. It's just terrible. Yeah. My, my, my. Y'all took us to church and to school. So I just, I have, I'm taking notes over here. Um, that was good. That was real good. Um, so many, um, so many nuggets. And I think, I, I think what, what stood out a lot to me is that like mental illness is also a social illness. I feel like that's a lot of what I was hearing you all say that like we as a society have to contend with our own ways of being and how it is that we are dehumanizing um, people in our community, um, the way that we punish, um, our, our reliance on, these, on, this, on the ways in which we want to address when harms have happened. And so, you know, just full of apathy and, um, and complicity. And so I want, so, so this kind of leads us into really the next question, which is, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure our listeners can tell from this conversation that you all are deeply committed to community 
and deeply committed to relationships. I know this to be true about both of you. And so, so how, so how can we as individuals and as a community begin to really engage in a more restorative response towards, towards people who have been impacted by the criminal punishment system? I feel like you all named the problem. Um, so, so now how do we begin to kind of move in a different direction? I take it, uh, Gia. Um, an investment in a centuries-old system that has harmed many has to be significant and holistic. It has to be. It has to be. Because when you piecemeal something, that requires addressing every part of, there's a different type of trauma associated with prison. Unaddressed trauma produces mental illness. When trauma is unaddressed, that's why you see Sometimes when I ride through my community, there are people standing outside, maybe talking to themselves or, you know, certain things going on that, you know, you know, where people would say, oh, they're crazy. No, they're traumatized and it hasn't been addressed. And so the investment has to be significant and it also has to come from society as well as those of us that already know you know we contribute in a way with our voices with how we show up how we how we describe we contribute like that there are others that can contribute financially. There's others that can contribute spiritually. There's others that can contribute mentally, you know. Um, so the contribution, and let me, the reason I say that is because when I came home, I went and I, I took, I was in therapy for over a year. And the reason why was because I needed a safe place to be able to say everything that I was feeling. Everything I needed to say, I don't know if I can do what they're asking me to do. I don't know. And so having that safe place was the difference between me succeeding and then pushing through some more trauma that had been inflicted because it's, it's traumatizing coming out, you know? So I think that our approach to, to rectifying or even, even just the tip of it is that it, it has to be a holistic approach. People have to have housing. People have to have uh, mental health services. People have to have health care. People have to have economic mobility. You know, not four or five to make ends meet because they never do. That's traumatizing. So, you know, just a lot of different ways to approach this monster. I think about a pizza. How do you eat a pizza? one slice at a time and sometimes one bite at a time. But if we keep on, it'll eventually be gone. Mm, yes, yes. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the, the less hopeful person in me is like, let's just get some kindergartners in the room. I, I don't even know what we're going to do with the, but give me, let's go start the kindergarten classrooms because, because this is learned, right? 
punitive ways of being, punitive logics, carceral logics are learned from. And so when somebody steps on your toe in the, in the kindergarten classroom, that's a critical moment for us to teach about and socialize around transformative justice using this terminology, you know, Mariam Kaba and, and others are teaching me so much about what's possible. When harm, when we harm, right? I love this version of the Lord's Prayer. And I forget the, the citation, but you know, the forgive us our debts as we forgive our debts. They transform that language to say, when we are harmed and commit harm, right? The implication has to be, unless we all gonna live on an island somewhere, and then we even hurt ourselves, but never mind. We're gonna, we're going to, there will be harm. And so this notion that, oh my God, I can't believe this harmful, uh-uh. We harm ourselves and others all day, every day. You know, if marriage has taught me anything, <laughs> I'm always apologizing, right? That, and so why don't we start there, making it less shameful to apologize, to work to repair harm right when it happens. Let's just, and let's stop treating all harm like all harm is equal in terms of degree. So really, I mean, and this is exactly what Minister Burlett was talking about. This is complicated. So we actually need a repair process customized and contextualized for each instance of harm, not some legal code that lumps all of this into a certain category. And then we got the mandatory minimums and this and that. No, because that's not, that's not the way it works. If you step on my toe, that's a whole different kind of repair process than if you violate my body. And so we need to develop uh, interventions, negotiations, processes that allow for accountability and repair. that is contextual and customized. Now you talk about investment, that's gonna take, cause you can't just slap a sticker on there and say, oh, this is our criminal justice system. No, right? It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of labor, emotional labor, spiritual labor, right? And so uh, I, I think that that's, we starting from the seed that has then grown into this huge forest that we're now trying to <laughs> deal with. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, what I noticed my students on the inside, there was lots of, um, I think, internalized shame and trauma. Here I am, I'm trying to, you know, we talking about liberative theologies and oh, you know, what if God is not the, you know, wrath, wrathful judge that's going to smite you down. You know, what if imagining, exploring the possibilities and my students wouldn't hear any of it. And it just broke my heart, not because they are, you know, any, but because they've, they've internalized, well, I guess I deserve to be, I guess, you know, I guess I deserve to be here. I guess, you know, what if we, what if we invested in strategies and institutions and practices that allow us to forgive ourselves? I mean, Minister Roulette talked about love as absolutely liberative and transformational, realizing that God loves you regardless, right? What if we loved ourselves regardless? You know what I mean? That's what black women have taught me. Um, and, and so 
I wonder about because we we can't we can do all the work on the outside, right? But we can't step over. Well, this is what my spiritual director and my mentor, my spiritual mentor, says to me all the time. You can't step over the wreckage of your own heart <laughs> to clean up outside, right? You can't clean everything outside of your house and come home to a mess, right? So doing some of that interior work, and that's the soft and fuzzy work that they don't want to do in politics. That ain't politics. Let's lead that up to the church. Well, I mean, whatever. I just think we need, we need something to help us with our interior lives, loving ourselves regardless, forgiving ourselves. Because you know, when you love yourself, you actually want to be accountable. But you don't, you don't take it so far as to internalize the shame so that you, you never can see yourself as worthy ever again which is what I kind of saw in my students, right? So love of self requires accountability, right? But as Minister Willette said, keeps no record of wrongs. First Corinthians 13, right? Uh, so I think if we could do, if we could do that, I mean, even community by community, I don't know how much I rely on the institutional powers that be to get what we're talking about, but if we could do it household by household, community by community, right? We could then we could then see some change. You know, Reverend Naomi, you talked about something about that deep shame and feeling undeserving. And I'm reminded of what it says. I think it's somewhere in Hebrews where it says, the blood of Jesus cleanses my conscience from dead works to serve a living God. You know, and a living God is alive. He talks to me in the morning, even when my, I haven't brushed my teeth. You know, he whispers to me at night. When I feel that I have blown it horribly, he lets me know his mercies are brand new every morning. And so when I get up and I know that I probably have failed miserably according to man, according to man, my conscience has been cleansed from dead works, doing this, doing that, having to send this to serve a living God who is totally invested in my success, committed to me being successful, no matter where I am, no matter who wants to oppress, no matter who brings up my past, no matter who talks about, you remember she is the one who, I have my conscience cleansed by the blood to serve a living God who is totally invested in me. And I wanna tell that to anyone who still walks around with that cloak of shame that has been stripped from me from a God of grace. And he strips that cloak of shame. When we really know who he is, when we really know and are in community with people that love us unconditionally, regardless to whatever we have done. I worked in prison slave labor for 70 cents a day. I did hair for over 20 years. And I didn't do hair for a giving because they couldn't pay me what I was worth. I didn't do it for a living. I did it for a giving. I would do their hair as if they had paid me hundreds of dollars because I knew that if a, just the, the way they got up out of the chair and felt about themselves afterwards was reward enough to know that I had invested in my sisters in community. And even if they walked around with that hairdo for a week and felt really, really good about themselves, it made me feel good. And so just that cloak of shame being stripped in intangible ways until we understand eternally, internally what he's done for us. That is love, in action, in action. 
because I'm liberated. I don't try to oppress you to keep myself elevated because I'm liberated. I don't have to do that. I just want to scream. I'm so happy. <laughs> like every, I'm like, <laughs> I am just so filled. Thank you so much, ladies. There is, whew, whew. I, I need to go scream. Like, like the spirit just is like, Camille, go outside, <laughs> scream. Because <laughs> everything that you're saying is such truth and goodness and I am overflowed. And I want to release this into my own community, into my own relationships in, okay. in every single way. And my, my little baby son, he's catching that spirit too. You hear him just hallelujah. <laughs> so what I, I, ladies, I thank you so much for being here. I want to transition us into the rapid fire portion of our podcast episode. These are three questions. We would love to have you answer them. Um, just whatever comes to the top of your mind so that we can understand where you are, um, how you are and your relationship with abolition. So I, our first question is what words or images come to mind when you think of resurrection? The, the messiness, the vulgarity of birth, right? Not some pristine, oh, I, but that, ooh, just, if I think about something coming alive, being born, that's a, that's a messy, sometimes even grotesque looking process. So when I think about resurrection, I think about that mess. When I think about resurrection, I think about something has to die. A complete dying of whatever it is, a system or whatever, it has to completely die in order for something new to be resurrected. And resurrection is always better than that old system. Resurrection speaks to new life, a new way of doing things, newness. And so in resurrecting something, I think about how Jesus rose to new life and how that life is transferred to anyone who will partake of it. And so that newness of life, that old system of law has to die punitive measures has to die in order for grace, restoration, and mercy to live. And so he does it through us. Even if, even if the, the white supremacy and the culture that we live in never does it, when people encounter us, they should encounter something different. I can't put my finger on it, but it's something different about you and the way you approached me when I thought that I was no longer worthy of anything. That's resurrection for me. That's what I think about when I think about resurrection. So, so good, so good. Something has to die so that something new can come in and that process is messy, messy, messy. So um, the, next, the next rapid fire question is, what is one way you practice abolition in your everyday life? By showing up in spaces that are still holding on to the old systems and the old ways of thinking and showing up to say, it has not worked in centuries. What makes you think that you can just rearrange it and say, this is new and it'll work. And also challenging the word recidivism. Recidivism says, 
You've given me everything I need to succeed. And I went back to prison. And we know that's not true. Yeah, that's how I challenge it. So good, so good. Um, you know what? I'm thinking of this Alice Walker poem. Uh, the first, I don't know if it's called this, but the line is, be nobody's darling. I'm trying to live free. I don't want to belong to any body, any institution, right? So I want to structure my life such that I'm not, because then I can speak courageously because I'm clear where my provision comes from. And so I'm not beholden to follow your status quo rules when I get up to preach or when I get up to teach or when I, I don't belong to you. And that's, that's how I'm trying to practice abolition in my vocational life in particular, because ministry has this way, you know, of owning you, you know, <laughs> and I don't belong to any, anybody. Even God extends an invitation. It ain't coercive relationship. I have to choose to follow Jesus. And so I wanna get rid of all of the coercion in my life. Like, and I'm working on that because I have a hard time saying no and all of it. I think saying yes all the time, it, overworking is coercive because you just feel obligated, obligated, obligated. And so I'm trying to remember what Alice Walker wrote. Don't be anybody's darling because then they can exploit you and use you and discard you and mm -mm. so that that's what i'm trying to do uh, mm -hmm, yes <laughs> uh, yes that is my response be nobody's darling set your boundaries hold them know your worth do not let yourself be exploited and do not let yourself be coerced i was thinking about how coercion is a form of violence, but because it happens in the workplace and because of this capitalist structure, no one says that it is. And coercion most often happens to us, black women, brown women, women of color, right? So I, I am saying this to affirm Reverend Naomi and affirm Minister Willette, your practices for everyday abolition, because really it is, it is, what are we doing to get free? Where, where are we going <laughs> as i am learning and just sitting at sitting at your feet and learning from you thank you for our last rapid fire question i would like to know what is it that brings you joy and laughter I'm a sci-fi geek, comic book geek, right? And I had to remember this. I don't know if I put this out of my mind, like that I was a kid who, you know, did this. But I had to remember, that, come back to myself. And so I have a whole, if I showed you my bookcase here, I have a whole shelf and a half, really, it's expanding, of graphic novels and comic books that make me, that stretch me to the hilt of my imagination, right? And in particular, DC Comics has a new-ish character. Guess what her name is? Naomi. Oh, so I, I enjoy, what brings me laughter is to imagine myself as a superhero, right? Not the, you know, superhero black woman who, you know, everybody just throw all your work at and I'm supposed to carry, no. But like, that I could be, I could be, I could fly and soar and do like, and so watching this adaptation of the, the comic book, Naomi on TV, cause they've made it Ava DuVernay and others 
brings me so much joy. Uh, and so I'm hoping to hold on to my little comic book thing uh, for as long as I can. Camille, I would have to have so much time to tell you all the things that bring me joy. Waking up in the morning in my own home brings me so much joy. Being able to walk outside and just smell the fresh air, spending time with my family, being in spaces like this with women of color that love other women of color, being affirmed by women of color brings me so much joy. I love watching movies, good food. <laughs> I'm a foodie. Spending time with my son and preparing for my wedding brings me so much joy. I am happy. Even in doing this work, I still have joy and I am happy. Yeah. Loving life brings me joy. That was good. That was real good. You all have your priorities right. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for just sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, your joy, your laughter with us, um, and your works and your commitments to, to, to freedom. So we couldn't be more delighted. And I know that our listeners will be um, will be blessed by this. So Minister Willette and Reverend Naomi, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, just as we part and kind of wrap up, would you like to share with our listeners um, where they might be able to find you all and get plugged in? Absolutely, uh, Gia. I am Minister Willette Benford. I am the lead decarceration organizer with Live Free Illinois. And I am also the board chair for the Fully Free Campaign to End Permanent Punishment. So you can reach me at my email at info at livefreeillinois.org or also at my email, wbenford at livefreeillinois.org. I am uh, all over the social medias uh, under at shift. Make sure you put the F in shift. I don't know who that other person is. That's not me. But know that I, I was trying to be, you know, tongue in cheek. Yes. Oh, holy shift uh, on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, Naomi Washington Leapart on Facebook. And I got a little YouTube channel where you can, if you're interested, watch some sermons and hear some panel, uh, you know, presentations and stuff that have been recorded. You can get there by going to bit.ly, so B-I-T dot L-Y slash watch nwl bit.ly slash watch nwl and you can see some videos and such i can be reached by email at justice pastor naomi justice pastor naomi at gmail.com thank you both so much i guess i'm not i i wasn't thinking about social media you know i'm new at this reverend naomi so I'm on, I am on social media, uh, all over social media, first and last name, Willette Benford, but on Instagram, I am my life new too, in you, my life in you too. So you can follow me on Instagram and social media and all that good stuff. I'm on Twitter, all that good stuff. So thank you. Thank you both. Camille, are we going to wrap up? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I don't know what to do with myself. I've learned so much. I'm like ready to explode. <sighs> do you want to, should we end the recording now or do we have anything more that we need to? No, we're good. We can end the recording now. Okay. And then we have our. Listeners, we'd love to hear from you and what you're learning. So please share with us on social media using the hashtag abolition as resurrection. At the end of the series, we want to create a community mural that captures our collective vision of abolition as resurrection. We're looking forward to seeing what we can create and learn together. The Abolition as Resurrection Lent and Easter miniseries is hosted in collaboration with the Solidarity Building Initiative at McCormick Theological Seminary.